Uh, the reading this morning is from Matthew 1, verses 1 through to 17. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminabad, and Aminabad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittil, Shittil the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abahite, Abahad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihad, Elihad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> nice easy one for you there, Lauren. Yeah, well done. I think we need to give her another round of applause. All right, so I'm starting to think, did I just over-promise and under-deliver? Um, I think in business you're supposed to under-promise and over-deliver, but I don't know, did that seem a bit bland to anyone? Uh, a little bit boring even. I, I think to help us out, um, we'll keep the movie theme going. Who's ever been to a 3D movie? Okay, so what do you need to put on to make the most out of a 3D movie? Yeah, you need those glasses. So I think in the same way to get the most out of this passage, we need to put on the glasses of a first century Jew. Because to a first century Jew, this passage would be intriguing and fascinating. It would be dramatic, but it would also be shocking. So with those glasses on, as a first century Jew, if you were looking around in Jerusalem or in Israel, the scenes would be pretty bleak. The Roman soldiers, the centurions, would remind you that you're a conquered people. And it's been that way for most of the last seven or eight hundred years. There was invasions by Babylon, 
they led to a terrible exile where the people of Israel were ripped out of their homeland. Then there were the Persians. Then came Alexander the Great for the Greeks. And now they're under Roman rule. The Romans have appointed a Jewish king, King Herod, uh, but even he's an imposter uh, because he's not from the legitimate rural line of David. Um, also, he happens to be a cruel psychopath. So things are pretty bleak. In fact, the last king of the royal line of David was 586 years ago. So there's been centuries of heartache and pain. As we saw in um, the passage of Isaiah that Ralph talked about last week, uh, it talked about a people walking in darkness and those living in a land of deep darkness. And this was certainly part of that darkness. But amongst this, there's been several covenants and promises of God over the centuries leading up to that. And two of them are, one is with King David and one was with Abraham. So the covenant promise with King David, um, God says to David in 2 Samuel, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish the kingdom of his, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, so that was a covenant is like an agreement that God had uh, with David and he promised him that would happen. That links straight into the Christmas uh, story in the passage we did last week. You may remember Isaiah 9 started off saying, for unto us a child is born, um, unto us a son is given. But it goes on in that passage to say that he will reign on David's throne uh, and over his kingdom, establishing it forever. So that's the Davidic or the David covenant. There's a second covenant with Abraham and amongst other things, God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants through which a blessing would come for Israel and all the nations. Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's these two covenants and there's other prophecies and covenants that, that lead to this concept of the Messiah. The Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek. They're the same, same thing. And, and literally that means the anointed one or the chosen one. But the Jewish community would have a much bigger picture of who the Messiah was going to be. The, the picture of Messiah they had that he would be the anointed king coming through the line of David and he would come and establish God's kingdom and save his people. But as we said, with all these centuries passing by, that must have seemed a bit like a distant myth or even a bit of a cruel hoax. But into this comes the genealogy. So in New Testament times, it would be totally expected to start someone's story with a genealogy. Um, a genealogy was a bit like a CV, but had a bit more authority. It kind of declared who you are it had legal standing, so you could use it to claim inheritance. Uh, you could use it for legal rights, for property acquisition, etc. And so it was a, a genealogy was a big deal. So this genealogy starts off with a huge claim. Uh, verse 1, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And to make sure we don't miss it, Matthew repeats it at the end of the passage uh, talking about Abraham to David, David to Babylon, and from Babylon to the Messiah. So he starts and finishes with Jesus, David, and Abraham. And he's really emphasising those three names. Now, 
For anyone to say they had lineage back to David and then even further back to Abraham, that would be incredibly fascinating and intriguing to a Jewish reader. Uh, it would really grab their attention. Um, so there's intrigue plus plus immediately for, for a Jewish reader. Uh, but Matthew's also shouting out the claim that Jesus is now the Messiah. So what he's saying is all God's dealings and work with humanity all through history, the focus and fulfilment of all that will be Jesus. And I think that's, attached, uh, that's a touch of drama right there. So it's a big claim, a couple of big claims. And of course, talk's cheap and it needs to be backed up. And that's what the genealogy is supposed to do. It's supposed to back up this claim. Now, who's ever had to do a CV to do a job application? Do you put your good stuff down or your bad stuff? You put your good stuff down, unless you're ticking a box for Centrelink or something, but generally you put your good stuff down in your CV. So it's the same with genealogies. There was a historical figure, Josephus. He published his genealogy. It was beautiful and spick and span. The trouble is we know from other documents that he left out a whole heap of bad stuff, just like you would with a CV today. So the idea of your genealogy, you would spruce it up and you would impress the reader with, um, with the quality and respectability of your descendants. So you would think after a claim of a Messiah, you'd think that would be the supreme Jewish CV. You'd think it'd be full of righteous Jewish kings, maybe some prophets, uh, some esteemed men. It would be by far and away, should be by far and away the most respectable in Jewish history. But is it? Well, not so much. The first thing that a Jew would have problems with is this genealogy has Gentiles in it, it has non-Jewish people. Now that mightn't be a big deal for us, but that then it, back then it was a big deal. You may remember our friend King Herod. He had some non-Jewish descendants. He had all the records destroyed that showed that. Um, such was the importance of, um, of a pure Jewish lineage. Um, but that's not the case for this genealogy. For example, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, and back in Deuteronomy, they had said that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. It just reinforces how shocking it is that there would be Gentiles in this passage. Perhaps even more shocking, it has five women in it. That would be unheard of in those times. Uncommonly, you might have one woman in a gene genealogy, and that would be to spruce it up. That would be kind of if the woman linked you to a royal family or a prestigious family, you might put a woman in there. And um, those of us might know that there was a traditional Jewish prayer where the male prayed, where he blessed God for not making me a slave, a Gentile uh, or a woman. So to put five women in, the gen in, a, in, a, in a genealogy uh, would again be unheard of and would be shocking. The fact that the genealogy includes racial outcasts and gender in outcasts uh, would sear into the mind of a Jewish reader. Let's have a bit of a look through some of the other names. Uh, Jacob, he joined with his mum, deceived his blind, blind dying dad Isaac, 
into giving him the inheritance of blessing that was due his older brother. That was how he came into the line of Jesus. Uh, Judah and Tamar. Judah failed to fulfil his obligation to give his younger son as a husband to Tamar. She disguised herself as a temple prostitute and Judah slept with her. That's how the line continued through them. Um, David. So David would normally be a heavy hitter in terms of respectability, um, but it's really interesting uh, what Matthew does. So David was married to uh, Bathsheba. Um, so Matthew could just have written David the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. And that's what you'd expect him to do. But instead he writes um, by the wife of Uriah, or whose, mother, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The background of this is that Matthew's actually highlighting the sin of David. Um, Bathsheba and Uriah had been married. He was an honourable general. Um, David desired Bathsheba and actually sent Uriah into the worst part of the battle um, to ensure that he was killed so that he could take Bathsheba for a wife. And that was how the line of Jesus continued. And now on to just a, a few of the kings. Rehoboam was bad. I think Lauren did a better job of reading these out than I did. Um, son Abijah was bad. Asaph was good. Jehoshaphat was good. Does anyone remember the phrase, jumping Jehoshaphat? Who, who remembers that phrase? Yeah, I remember my mum saying that. Usually it wasn't good. Um, so, jumping Jehoshaphat. Um, Joram, uh, he was described as a wicked fellow. So what do we make out of all of this? I think one thing that we can say is that according to Matthew, he was being true and genuine when he wrote this stuff down. When he wrote the story of Jesus, he's being truthful. Because there's no way, if you were making up a story of Jesus, there is no way you would write this genealogy. And um, so I think if we come across people who, in conversation, say to us or argue that they think the stories of Jesus are all made up. Uh, this is a great passage to take them to and, uh, and kick off that discussion because it's not the ultimate shiny genealogy. It's actually a bit of a mess. But what else is, what else is God telling us through Matthew about this promised blessing of Jesus, this anointed saviour king? Well, I think one of the big message, messages is that the blessing of Jesus is for everyone. Sinners, Jews and Gentiles, men and women. Paul would say in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave or free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. Can you imagine if that wasn't true, if God did play favorites with race or gender? Thank God he doesn't, and we're all one in him. I think the second big message through the passage is that the blessing of Jesus comes by grace alone. Uh, undeserved blessing. The coming of Jesus has nothing to do with the righteousness of humanity, but it has everything to do with the loving grace of God. It's a great reminder that we're saved by grace alone, with no cause for boasting or pride. Again, Paul would write later in Romans, there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified freely by his grace. 
I think it's a great reminder because I think when we move out of grace, we start grieving the spirit and it's a bit like kind of turning the tap off the work of the spirit through us and in us. So a great reminder. So Jesus comes for everyone and he brings the blessing through grace. So what should be our response or what could be our response? Well, I think one response would be to bring the blessing back to God, give blessing back to God. So over this Christmas period, but, but always, uh, to praise him, to celebrate him, to think about him, to read the Bible, and give thanks to God for the love and grace, especially at this Christmas time. I think another thing we can do is deliver the grace on. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And I think part of that means to hand on that grace to others around us. Now one person I may need to deliver the grace is to myself. If I catch myself feeling undeserving of God's blessing or I'm feeling unworthy of God, I think this passage reminds me it's not about my righteousness. It's all about accepting the gift of Jesus that's been given to us. I think once, I'm in, once I've done that, I'm in a position to deliver grace to others. If God's lavished us with undeserving grace, undeserving blessing, I think we reveal Jesus to those around us when we hand out grace. We hand out blessing, not just to those we think we do deserve it, uh, but to those who maybe society thinks doesn't deserve it. We've got something in the handout today um, that can be a useful tool. I mean, there's plenty of ways. You, you don't need me to tell you how to, how to bless people. Um, but there's a, there's a helpful tool in the handouts and in the emails this week. It's, it's a BLESS acronym. It's a good tool for uh, witnessing grace to those around us in the workplace or in family or friends. Uh, BLESS is the acronym. B is begin with prayer. L is listen to their story. Uh, eat is eat food, drink coffee with them. S is serve, look for, look for ways to serve. Um, and the other S is to share the story of Jesus um, in our life uh, and in the Bible. So that's just something in the handout that you might find helpful. All right, now to finish off. And this was something I felt God uh, impressed me just in the last day or two. Uh, so this wasn't part of the message until a day or two ago. When you look at that family history, um, it's messy. And I really felt the sense of, you know, let's be real. We all have some mess in our lives somewhere. I've got mess in my extended family that I've been praying about for two or three years. But Jesus comes to meet us in the mess. Jesus comes to meet us in the mess. I think this passage helps me to keep trusting. I think over those centuries it would have been easy for Israel to think that God had forgotten them. Uh, but Christmas tells us he hadn't. And he hasn't forgotten us either. We may want him to fix our messes in a certain way or in a certain time. And sometimes he does it. Um, but sometimes he's got other things that he's working through with us. I think what he does promise us is that he'll be with us in the mess. I think he gives us the blessing and the peace of his presence. And I think he brings us the hope 
that he'll bring us through it all until the time he makes all things new. So can I just encourage us, um, when life gets messy, invite Jesus in. I, th I guess that'll involve some personal prayer, but also part of that, I think, is letting the body of Jesus, the people of Jesus, minister to us. Um, so to that end, after the service, if, if you feel led to, we'll have people praying in the prayer corner and can I encourage you as a, as a way of inviting Jesus into the mess um, to come and pray, pray with the people. Um, but for now, I guess another way to bless and celebrate God and everything that he's done is through communion. So I'll hand over to, to Ralph for that.